You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Please turn in your Bible to a book we don't look at that often for preaching, the book of Proverbs, found right after Psalms, Proverbs 1, and then you might see I'm also going to read in the New Testament from Hebrews, near the end of the New Testament, Hebrews 10. We just explain where we are after a break of a week for a conference last week. I've been considering since August a series of topical messages that I expect will go into February. We will take a break from this subject in December, but the subject is called After Death, What? Trying to consider all the realities that the Bible sweeps together. What is death? What does it entail? What is its penalty? How is it conquered by the cross and resurrection of Jesus? What is the security that the Christian has in death? We've looked at that already, that wonderful assurance that we will be with Christ Secure in Him, our souls are held by Him, and He will not let them go. And then at the final day, at His resurrection, we will have glorified bodies. But then, coming up to that point, you remember I departed from the issue of the good things for a Christian and said, what about the other side? What about the unbeliever? We've been looking at that, the hard side of things, for the last few weeks in judgment, and now... For several Sundays, we're going to look at that issue that no one ever wants to talk about, that reality that the Bible speaks about called hell, a hard thing indeed, not a pleasant subject, but one that does show us like, a, like the black velvet that you put a beautiful diamond jewelry upon to show the brilliance of the diamond, the black velvet of these judgmental topics show us the greatness of God's salvation. And so today I would read from what you may think is an unusual text to look at this, but I believe it will come into focus for you. First Proverbs chapter 1. I'll begin at verse 20. Wisdom calls aloud in the street, and she raises her voice in the public squares. At the head of the noisy streets she cries out, and in the gateways of the city makes her speech. How long will you simple ones Love your simple ways. How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? If you had responded to my rebuke, I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you. But since you rejected me when I called and no one gave heed when I stretched out my hand, since you ignored all my advice and would not accept my rebuke, I, in turn, will laugh at your disaster. I will mock when calamity overtakes you. When calamity overtakes you like a storm and disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble overwhelm you, then they will call to me, but I will not answer. Then they will look for me, but will not find me. Since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, Since they would not accept my advice and spurn my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, 
and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. Then a very different book. You might say a very different message, but I think you will see the similarity. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Our Father, I pray that we have light to see this which so many millions cannot see. Help us, O God, with a hard subject to hear your word, to trust your Savior, and to do that with worship and adoration, where even we, in our reason, cannot understand. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Before she became the Queen of England, sometime in the early 1950s, Princess Elizabeth attended worship at an Anglican cathedral with her family. She heard a bishop preach that day, but she was unsatisfied with what she heard. Perhaps with the boldness of her youth, probably only an older teenager at the time or near the age of 20, I would guess, going out the door, the princess spoke to the bishop who had preached the sermon and asked a question. She said, is it true, bishop, that there is a place called hell? The bishop didn't expect that question, I guess, but he said, well, princess, the Scriptures say there is. And the Church of England in her creed has always maintained that this is so. And the future queen then responded to say this, then why, as God's spokesman today, did you not take the opportunity to tell us so? A poll taken in the USA about 20 years ago showed that more than 70% of Americans have some kind of belief in a hell of punishment beyond this life. They define it differently. They understand it differently. Many don't understand it biblically, but more than 70% would say, yes, there's some kind of justice of punishment beyond this life. Guess how many thought they themselves individually had a chance to experience that or would experience it? 4%. 4%. Now, in recent consideration 
of the subject of after death what we've probed, the fact that the good news of gospel redemption in Christ must signify escape from some bad news. What kind of a gospel do we have to call good news unless it has a dark alternative? And so now we're asking, what is the destiny for the unbeliever? And last time, two weeks ago, we saw that human beings, according to John 3.18, are naturally dead in their trespasses and sins. They have a default destination, and it is not heaven. The word of John 3, beloved John 3, that just a couple verses earlier has the wonderful John 3.16, in John 3.18 says that those who are dead in their trespasses and sins are already condemned. And they face spiritual separation from God and devastating consequences as a default destination. You know, in our time, you can use the word hell in conversation and it will be generally accepted so long as you're doing one of two things. Telling a joke, because there's all kinds of jokes about hell, or cursing. Use the word that way, and it's expected, and it's part of normal discourse, but try to raise the subject as a serious discussion, as a spiritual alternative for people, and you will find people at a party will walk away from you very fast. Who wants to think of the reality of hell other than to dismiss it as a joke? Nobody wants to dwell on the theme, and I confess to you, I don't really want to. It's not my fondest desire to somehow beat you with this subject for several weeks. But as someone charged to be faithful to the Scripture, I say, how can I ignore this subject? It has to be considered. The topic is written large all over the pages of the Bible as a pillar of the Christian message. Take it out, and you have a great sense that something important is missing. Now, people often ask this question. It's thrown around a lot. The question goes like this. How can a good God send anyone to hell? It's asked in that tone of voice usually, too. And people seem to think if they've posed that question, they've raised the objection that shoots down the entire Christian system of thought. It doesn't do so at all because their question is wrong. God doesn't send you to hell. You send yourself. That is the clear, unanimous message of Scripture. People without Christ are naturally headed not to some divine torture chamber concocted by a monster God, but to absolute justice that satisfies the just deserts of their intransigent, rebellious unbelief. Scripture teaches that those who have lived in what the Bible calls enmity against God will find themselves forever banished from His presence. They hated Him while they were alive. Why would they expect to have His blessing after they're not alive? But of course, the kinder and gentler and more tolerant version of Christianity that is so popular in the 21st century has a hard time with this. And in a former generation, a theologian named Richard Niebuhr put it very memorably when he, in a bit of a caustic statement, said, what we have today is a 
God without wrath, who brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of Christ without a cross. That is not a gospel that we can afford. And so if you think it's odd that I would preach on this grim subject for several weeks, I wonder if you think it would be odd if you went to your physician and that physician diagnosed that you have a malignant tumor of some kind, but that physician did not tell you you had a tumor and did not prescribe for you whatever possible treatment could be brought to bear to cure it. What would you think of a doctor who didn't tell you about your cancer? That's exactly the situation as we face the Word of God on this subject. Now, my first point today is the long one, and two shorter ones will follow. And the first is that this theme, that God's just wrath against unbelief is displayed throughout the entire Bible. I'm going to try to show that to you in a really quick survey that could be many times as long as it will be. You know, there are truths in the Bible that are subtle. You have to study carefully to see them, and they're they're nuanced. They're sort of between the lines, or they're inferred rather than directly stated. Or maybe they're very complex, and, and you need guidance to see how they come together. Well, the doctrine of hell is not such a truth. It is simple and blunt. It tells us that at the moment of death, souls that belong to Christ do enter indeed His blessed presence to await that great event of the resurrection body one day when Christ returns. But at the same time, the souls of unbelievers experience regret and anguish until at that same final judgment they are cast out into some kind of eternal ruin. Now what I want to do is show you a major Old Testament text, then a major New Testament text with some other New Testament texts added in. Just a flavor, just to get a sample of how this doctrine is spread across the Scripture, all of it. So I ask you to look at Proverbs 1, and I selected this passage because it's an unlikely one. You say, I never knew the doctrine of hell was in Proverbs. I just thought Proverbs was about a lot of wise advice, little nice little sayings that you put on a little sign on your kitchen wall about how to live. Well, one of the things Proverbs is about is the voice of wisdom. And wisdom is personified in Proverbs as a woman's voice. Later, the Scripture picks that up, and you would understand that this voice of wisdom is the entire appeal of God that becomes the gospel, the good news of the New Testament. So here we read about this woman with her voice calling out to a young man, if you had read earlier in the chapter, in the marketplace to give him some vital advice that he needs to hear. But he's moving about in the marketplace of the world. He's busy in business. There are all kinds of appealing sights and sounds and things to investigate. He hears the voice. It's audible, but he does not heed it. And so verse 26 says that calamity will come to him. It will overtake him like the tsunami storms come if those tremendous earthquakes in the South Pacific that sweep over parts of Indonesia or other lands and and suddenly just inundate a whole area. But it also says that this calamity, verse 31, tells us 
will be them eating the fruit of their own ways. And fools will be destroyed by their own complacency. And then that concluding promise, because Scripture is never all about doom without the promise of escape. Verse 33, the last verse of the chapter, says, whoever listens to me, listens to this voice of wisdom and warning, will live in safety and be at ease and not have fear of harm. Now, of course, Christ isn't mentioned here. This isn't the full-fledged New Testament gospel. But why I'm suggesting this chapter is significant, because here in Proverbs even, an unlikely place with no mention of the word hell and no flames and no people in anguish and no gnashing of teeth, you have the biblical logic set down of God's historic appeal. Look to me and live. There's a way of safety. There's a way of peace. There's a way of escape from harm. But if you will ignore it, you at your own peril will have calamity brought on your head. That is the the message here. Then it's a consistent message that when this person comes to ruin, it will be laid at his own door. You can't shake your fist at heaven and say, you didn't tell me. God's word in many ways is saying, the knowledge is there, the message is there. It's the same thing John 3.18 told us two weeks ago, that there are people who are condemned already. Why? Because they lost at some arbitrary lottery system that God had? No. Because they do not believe in the name of God's only Son, who is wisdom personified. Jesus Christ is the voice of wisdom. His gospel is the voice of wisdom. As he came in the flesh, God sent his Son. He sent his Son into the marketplaces of the world and all the din of business and distraction that people were about so that instead of paying their full attention to commerce and amusements and everything else, they might turn to him and live. And it's a question of whether they will hear his voice. Well, we could do more with that, but I'm going to quickly go on now and look to that other text I gave you, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 to 31. It's a similar flowing message, but quite a bit more explicit because now the gospel has come. Now Jesus Christ is known. The cross and the resurrection have taken place, and here's the writer of Hebrews appealing to Jewish-born people who have heard this gospel of Christ, and we have the strong sense they have paid at least nominal attention to it. They've, they've made some nodding awareness. Maybe they've even said, yes, I believe. But they appear to have spurned Christ and his cross. They have no deep devotion to him, no life-transforming faith. They look the same as unbelievers, and so the writer wonders if they are unbelievers. And he writes hard things and says, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that wisdom from God about Christ, if they would continue to rebel against God, what can they expect? judgment, and raging fire. Because verse 29 says what they've been doing is trampling the Son of God underfoot, treating His blood as an unholy thing. I'm not going to engage this text in great depth, but I would say this to you. There are many non-Christians, non-believers who would say, wait a minute, I haven't insulted Jesus Christ. I have a basic respect for Him. 
how can you say I've trampled him underfoot? I'm just neutral about it. That's all. I think he's fine. If, if he's good for you, great. But I'm neutral. Well, the problem is the Bible does not allow for neutrality in ultimate matters. If you do not belong to Christ, you are seen as against Christ. To you, your unbelief might seem no worse than a charge brought against you of involuntary manslaughter. Oh, it was a total accident. That, that guy stumbled right into the path of my car. I couldn't avoid it. It's terrible that I killed him, but it certainly wasn't my fault. God says, no, unbelief is not involuntary manslaughter. It's first degree, premeditated, conscious, and continual murder. Now, we could add a lot of other things, and real quickly, I want to do that. I didn't read these texts for you but because they're scattered all over, but I would point you to Matthew. Next Sunday, we're going to look at Jesus speaking about this subject in Luke, in one important place. But you know, you wouldn't need much more than what Jesus himself says in Matthew on this topic to get your attention. Mark this well. The hardest spokesman on the subject of eternal hell is not Paul. It's not Solomon who wrote Proverbs. It's not the prophet Isaiah. It's Jesus Christ. That ought to have your attention. Look at just a few things real quickly in serial form in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. In the Sermon on, oh, everybody loves the Sermon on the Mount, right? Oh, there's nothing hard in the Sermon on the Mount. Just tells me, just a nice little address that tells me how to live. Well, check it out. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, and 29, where Jesus speaks about a hell of fire and of being thrown into hell for those who ignore him. Matthew eight twelve, he adds there that unrighteous men, unbelievers, will be, quote, thrown into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew ten twenty eight, a very crucial text. He says, you know, you're afraid of people in this world who can hurt you, who can hurt your body. You're, you're afraid of an economy that can wreck your, your fortune and your savings or your stocks account or somebody who can attack you or beat you up. You're afraid of the wrong things. He said, Matthew 20, 10, 28, the right person to fear is not someone who can harm you physically, but, quote, fear him, that is God, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Matthew thirteen forty, Jesus again tells a parable of unbelievers being gathered up when the wheat is gathered from a crop. The weeds are thrown over to one side. Unbelief. The unbelievers are clearly the weeds that are just burned up because they're useless. And then that text that we touched on some weeks ago, Matthew twenty five forty six, the separation of sheep, his believing people, from goats, unbelievers. And what happens to the unbeliever? The very last word there in the 25th chapter of Matthew is, they go away into eternal punishment. Now, that isn't even all he says just in the Gospel of Matthew. That's just a sampler. You have to contend with Jesus on this subject, who said very hard, edgy things. Now, sometimes people ask, they say, well, <laughs> come on, you're a modern person, you're an educated pastor. Do you really think that, that it's talking about real fire? And you know all the cartoons, the silly cartoons, people standing around in flames, 
telling little jokes to each other or something. In other words, the society says, there's no real flames. Don't be ridiculous. Well, here's what I would say to you. Well, of course, fire is a symbol or an image that signifies something. Our inclination is to say, well, the image is worse than the reality. But biblically, the reality is worse than the image. For you know what the fire of eternity without God really is? It's God. It's God. Hebrews 12.29, which I didn't read earlier, calls God a consuming fire. What does that mean? It means that in His holiness, in His perfection, sin cannot dwell in His presence. So you need some means by which that sin of yours would be covered, protected, absolved, taken away if you're going to ever dwell in God's presence and say, what a delight to know my God. What a blessing. What a joy to look on the face of God. You can do that with the covering of Christ, His righteousness on you, absolving your sin. But if you go to God, Without that protective covering, he is a consuming fire. To the unbeliever, that's what he is. If you insist on facing God in eternity without Christ's righteousness, utterly changing your undeserving soul, to me, you might as well decide to make a parachute drop onto the surface of the sun. That is what our God will be like to the unbeliever. Someone I would almost never quote from a positive angle is the atheist philosopher John Paul Sartre, who believed in what we call existentialism, the view that this existence is all there is. But Sartre said something wise. It's almost as if God the Holy Spirit was speaking through him when he wrote, the last thing I want to be subject to is the gaze of a holy God. You got that right, Mr. Philosopher. Now, I've not even mentioned numerous references to hell in Paul's epistles. We could go into all kinds of things there. The book of Revelation, time's against me doing all that today. But I hope you would have it suffice that one block from Proverbs, where we could have gone to Isaiah and many other prophets and Old Testament passages, one block from Hebrews and many verses from Matthew, where we could have gone to many other texts, serve to say that the Scripture is literally embedded, Old Testament and New Testament, with this doctrine. If the Bible contains nothing about hell, as some people seem to imagine, or want to expunge it, or want to erase it, then God will never be proved to be a just God. And Christ is no deliverer because there's nothing for him to deliver from. Now, my second point is really very brief. And it adds this. A hell of woe is consistent in all doctrinal summaries and major voices heard across church history. Major creeds, major confessions written for 19 centuries of Christianity, all confess this doctrine. And you could, again, you know, I'm just going to give you the tiniest sampler. The Athanasian Creed is one you don't know that well. It comes from around 500 A.D. Athanasius was a courageous man of God. 
And he composed a, a creed, or he and followers did, that came to be known. And on this subject it says, At Christ's coming all men shall rise in their bodies, and those who have done evil will go into everlasting fire. Simply quoting the New Testament. Our own Westminster Confession, written in the early 17th century, the rather full-fledged creed that we say helps us understand the Bible. It isn't the Bible itself. It's a man-made creed. But here's what it says. God has appointed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ. On that day, the righteous will go into eternal life, but the wicked who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Christ Jesus will be cast into eternal torment and punished with everlasting destruction away from the presence of the Lord. And that can be footnoted word for word and supported from the New Testament. John Calvin, we've studied him at a conference last weekend. Calvin said, No physical description can deal adequately with the gravity of God's vengeance against wicked unbelief. Biblical pictures, he said, of darkness, weeping, gnashing teeth, and fire only serve to confound us with dread about a reality greater than the imagination can picture. We could cite many, many more people. I'll put in one from the very modern time, C.S. Lewis in the 20th century. Very simple statement, very biblical. C.S. Lewis said, a man cannot be sent to hell. You go there under your own steam. Now, those are some of the many witnesses, and again, time allows us only to sample this morning. But we look and try to bring some synthesis here and application in the third place as I ask, what is the gospel of hope in Christ? Unless Christ truly rescues us from perishing in hell. I heard something quoted in a... uh, a message on the internet by a fine preacher, Alistair Begg, that just struck me, and I quote it for you. Alistair Begg told about a a speaker, something he had read from the moderator that at that time, this is from 1997, the man who was the moderator, he was a minister, ordained minister, moderator of the United Church of Canada. Now, that's a very large denomination of two or three million amalgamated by bringing together all kinds of former denominations, Methodists and Presbyterians and everybody into a big, sort of a big vacuous nothing with very left-leaning theology. If you think that's a prejudicial statement, go and check it out. You'll find it's true. And here's this big mainstream Canadian denomination, and here's its moderator, quoted in the Ottawa Citizen, October 1997. Here's what he said. Listen very carefully. The divinity of Jesus or the reality of heaven and hell are irrelevant. I don't believe Jesus was God, but I'm no theologian. (laughs) Do you love that? I have no idea, he said, if there is a hell. And I don't think Jesus cared either omitting the Gospel of Matthew and Luke and quite a few other things. Here was a man who has really abandoned Christian faith entirely. What he has is Christian in only the most nominal way, if it it even can be called nominal Christianity. I don't know if he ever was a Christian. He ignores the Bible. He tramples Christ underfoot. He says, I don't 
think there's a hell. Jesus isn't divine, and I don't think Jesus cares about hell. Well, the point is you expect that sort of blasphemy from someone who just isn't reading God's Word or caring about it. But what concerns me today is a greater problem, a deeper problem, a more widespread problem, the de-emphasis upon this reality, even by evangelicals who attempt to preach the gospel of Christ, but make it nice and make it palatable and make it popular. Oh, we don't want to offend the visitors. Hell can fade out of the picture just by softening it, failing to mention it, failing to treat the many, many, many passages where it comes up. And by neglect, the doctrine falls by the wayside and people don't even notice. C.S. Lewis told about hearing a student preach, a seminary student actually told a congregation, if you do not accept Christ, you will suffer great eschatological implications. Lewis said, do you mean they'll go to hell? He said, yes, I meant that. Lewis said, then say it. Men talk little of hell when they think they have only a little sin. And so they only need a little Savior. But when you realize that there's a great overwhelming burden of sin on you, and you are condemned already, you want a great Savior, knowing you will fall into great destruction before a great, majestic, holy God who actually has provided the way to escape that terrible destiny. You see, de-emphasis on hell and judgment in the 21st century is not based on some new discovery in, in the Bible so that we go and say, oh, we found out the Bible really doesn't teach this after all. And there's new light on the subject. No, there's no new light on the subject. The light's been shining all the time on this doctrine, but there's new darkness in the culture. And John told us people love darkness instead of light. They take comfort from being in the darkness because a doctrine about hell rips right through the fabric of human-centered salvation. And it tells us that there is an awesome God before whom we will be accountable if we will not come to him as a father who wants to receive us under the covering of the righteousness of his son. You know, I I plotted out what's in this series of sermons weeks and weeks ago, and I knew November was going to be a hard month, and it is. You might wonder, how do I preach this hard doctrine? I tell you, they may not be streaming down my face right now, but I preach it with tears. I preach it with brokenness. Because this is a reality that crushes pride and arrogance and boasting The redemption of the cross is about the grace of God. And we tell this reality, and then we plead in telling it, why will you choose to die when God offers the way of everlasting life in Jesus Christ? Why will you choose to die? Why will you listen to the voice of wisdom and the gospel in the marketplace and turn to the glittering attractions of today and say, tomorrow will deal with itself? Oh, yes, it will. And it will be here all too soon. In closing, let me say this. You may recall that as December 1999 approached, the Y2K scare had millions of people thinking we were facing 
major societal breakdown. And so December was a difficult month, and December 31st was coming, and everybody, or some people anyway, were sure that I wasn't. I was on record, by the way, (laughs) saying it wasn't going to happen. But here were people very fearful. On December 31, 1999, at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, my friend, Dr. James Boyce, led a midnight communion service as the new year was ushered in. I wasn't there, but I'm told at the Lord's table, Dr. Boyce told his congregation, I have it written what he said, quote, I ask you to understand that your problem tonight is not whether your computer will work tomorrow. Our great problem is we are all going to die. And you will come to stand in judgment before God, and if you do not come to him trusting in the death of Jesus Christ as your atonement for sin, you will be condemned forever. I'm told a very unusual solemnity filled the sanctuary that night as people received the Lord's Supper. Little did anyone present know that their senior pastor, Dr. Boyce himself, would be ushered into the presence of the Lord of glory five and a half months after he spoke those words. He spoke the truth. Do you realize that in the half hour I've been speaking to you, estimates would say that at least 6,000 souls have breathed their last on this earth and entered eternity. Stop and take a breath for just a moment. Three more. Is that amazing? Every one of those people is either with Christ or excluded from him forever. And people, I must ask you in the words of Hebrews 2.3, how shall we escape? if we neglect such a great salvation. Our Father, we would not dwell on things disproportionately to your word. We would not be prophets of gloom and doom without holding out the wonderful light of grace. But do not let us be heedless and foolish and not understand eternal reality. Thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the way of escape. Turn us to him with all joy and assurance. We pray in his name. Amen.